0: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu.
1: Next time on The World, suspicious deaths in Iran. Two scientists became suddenly ill and died. They were just the latest.
2: Every once in a while, we have an assassination All in sensitive sectors of the Iranian industries, military, aerospace.
1: Iran says Israel is to blame. A shadow war intensifies in the Middle East on the world.
3: Beginning this afternoon at one.
0: Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health, with open positions for Occupational Safety and Health compliance officers, environmental health specialists, and advisors. labor.hawaii.gov slash jobs.
4: You are listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Katherine Cruz. The Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau has until next Tuesday to decide if it will challenge the award of a North America marketing contract worth over $34 million. HVCB has been the only entity to hold a contract. It had secured the contract initially, but after a protest by the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, the bid was thrown out and rebid. In the second round, the contract was then awarded to the council. Under the process, HVCB officials asked for a debrief and got that yesterday. Those directly involved are essentially gagged from commenting until the challenge process is complete. But industry watchers say the process is suspect and raises questions about what should happen going forward. Keith Vieira is with KV and Associates Hospitality Consultants and is a former Starwood executive. He talked with us this morning.
5: First of all, you should have these things be reviewed every so many years. However, in something as important as visitor spending, which drives tax revenues and drives uh, employment, if a group has been successful year after year after year, and if you look at what's happening right now, we have less visitors spending more money, which is exactly what we wanted. As a state, we were concerned about the continued growth of visitor arrivals and we want a more emphasis on visitor spending so that the tax base still be there. You just can't cut visitors and, you know, expect you're going to grow revenue unless you go after different visitors. And all that was done by HVCB and they recently won some awards on the whole Malama campaign, which is great. So they're doing their job. They go through an RFP process. They win the RFP process then a group that came in second complains arbitrarily the person in charge of the rfp says yeah we're going to do it again changes the rules the second time in the rfp that looks like it benefits the second group and that is in the marketing expertise area because that's hvcb's that and relationships with the distribution system is what's so important to the, to the industry and the community and gives it to a group that doesn't have those strengths. Now, I don't know anything about the group or anything bad, and maybe they're you know, a really good bunch of people. I do know Anne Botticelli and I think she's excellent. But this is about marketing and about distribution system. So after, you know, then they rebid it. The group that came in third all of a sudden partners with the group that came in second. It just absolutely looks like a setup, and then on the rebid, it goes to somebody else. Well, I don't like taking the emphasis off of marketing because that is the most important thing the HVCP does. They're not the one in charge of destination management, that's HTA. So this sits very badly and it's concerning for the future because in the short run the benefit that we're getting now from pent-up travel demand even though we don't have many international travelers is positive and probably going to continue but when things settle a bit and people are traveling to different destinations around the world you want to have the best person or the best group out there marketing you and continuing to build relationships with consortia, wholesale, incentive houses, meeting planners, et cetera, et cetera and we just got rid of them. And even though they do have some of the accounts for the other areas, and I understand that, but the major part of what they do, they'll no longer do. It's wrong, especially when you you follow a flawed process.
4: You know, there, there are other things that have come up as I've you know gone through the proposals. There were some concerns about who exactly was involved in what's called a transition group.
5: Well, we know of at least two, mm-hmm. Jerry Gibson and Tom Cotty. You know, Tom was heavily involved. I think he might have even been interim head of HCCB for a little while, if I remember correctly, some years back. And the fact that they used their names without getting it, you know, if you're going to have somebody commit to do work for you, you've got to have a clear understanding that they're going to do it, you know, based on some type of communication, you know, whatever. And then you do that. But to put people's names in something as important as transition, because the transition from a marketing agency that's been doing it for a hundred years to a group, that have been doing nothing to do with to, uh, visitor industry marketing, transition is going to be crucial. So, I mean, who can you trust? And again, I don't know this group, and they may have good people, but they didn't have any marketing people until they aligned with the group that came in third when it was rebid. That's just wrong.
4: And so, do you see uh, a remedy? I mean, I, we've not heard yet whether uh, HVCB is going to file the protest. They have until next week. But. It's
5: messy. I think they should. And I think this has to be stepped back to be looked at, uh, both from what's in the RFP and, more importantly, the judges. You cannot just have state people or people that don't have knowledge. I mean, when the other group, the group that ended up winning, complained about Karen Hughes, she was the only one in the group for new marketing. And I worked with her for 20 years. She's about the highest integrity, honesty of anybody I've ever met. And she did what she was told to do, on the instructions, which was graded by, you know, so many points for certain areas. And marketing plan was one of them. And I don't believe that group had a marketing plan, or it wasn't substantial, so she graded accordingly. You know, and then with all the changes in the judges, all of a sudden it goes to the second place team, which combined for the third. It's just wrong. They have to redo it. They have to make it clear what they're going to make as a criteria and has to be logical to what is needed by the community and the industry. And then they have to get judges to have knowledge and experience of what they're seeing and what's being presented to them.
4: Have we ever come up with a situation like this, you know, as contracts are being awarded?
5: No, I've not seen it before. You know, I've seen things like when the group market was under bid and the groups that were competing were some people that had previously worked in group sales for the Bureau, for the industry. So when you saw different groups applying, you understood that, okay, that was a group that's logical. I don't get anything logical about this group being the head of marketing for the visitor industry. Now, as far as the message to the local community and ensuring that we're doing the right message to visitors coming in, et cetera, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're excellent. and. And they should definitely have input on that. But should they be driving the marketing bus? I don't believe so.
4: And there are some who might wonder what's going to happen to the bureaus on the neighbor islands. You know, how does that work?
5: Well, it's trickier. And even what HVCB has left, which I think is group marketing, and some some areas are much smaller. You have a lot of members paying dues. Are they going to still pay dues for that? I mean, what was successful about HVCB? It was a private public partnership so everybody had skin in the game when hvcb wanted to go do a co-op program or do something that benefits industry as a whole they had money from the state and then they got industry to put in money so it's the right way that the, the industry everybody has a skin in the game and you, you always want that because everybody's working towards a common goal but will that continue i i, I don't know
4: this stands to be a major upheaval, and there have right. been questions raised about, yeah, uh, does the council have what it takes to deliver uh, that contract? And we don't have much lead time.
5: No, and, and for the industry, you put in a tough spot because, okay, let's say this doesn't go to rebuild, and let's say they got it. Well, you can't sit here just grumbling, you' gonna what are you gonna do because this is this is livelihood for employees. This is livelihood for the community. I mean, there's two point five billion, I think, generated uh, in uh, visitor spending taxes. You know, we just can't say, well, we're not going to play with them. Well, no, you can't do that. you got to figure out how we're going to make the best of a very difficult situation. So it's difficult. Even HTA is saying that, oh, in the interim, they're going to staff up and, and handle the marketing in the interim. That's not what they do. That's why they outsource it. It's just, you know, it. I mean, I like to see it extend h p c b for one year. Get yourself together, get the plan together in the next year. And in six months from now, have the right number of the people on on the judging thing, make sure the RFP has been vetted by the community and the industry and the community, and then go about a very transparent process.
4: Well, there are folks out there, you know, who are... Critics of HTA and the way it has operated okay. to get us to this point of 10 million. But we are where we're at right now, where there is a, a, a definite feeling that, there, that 10 million is too much without proper management, and, and we have to work together toward dealing with this. But how did that. Go? Catherine, 2009,
5: 6.4 million visitors, 63,000 hotel rooms, condos, and timeshare. 2009. 2019, which is the same as today. 63,000 hotel rooms, condos, and timeshare exact same number. And the visitor count arrivals went from 6.3 to 10.4 million. Where did they go? They're only legal accommodations. That's what needs to be put a stop to, because those people don't spend money as much. Nothing wrong with what they do, but they don't spend money. And what do they do? They, they're going to you know, Costco and the beach every day and going hiking, biking, all the things that are fun and experiential to do. But that's not the target visitor. So what's happened now because of the pandemic is we have less visitors. We're down, I guess, about 10, still down about 10%. But visitor spending is up 26%, primarily because some of things have gone up more in costs and people who stay in resorts tend to spend more money. So what HCA was asked to do and passed down to HVCB was we want less people spending more money. Let's find that type of visitor. And that's what they've done. And now you fire them. It's just not feeling right now. And I think HCA, in my view, HDA has lost its way. For one thing, now it wasn't their fault that the legislature took 650 million in visitor accommodation taxes, primarily paid all by visitors, 90 plus percent paid by visitors. You know that was a big, major loss in terms of having the stability of multi-year plans and and, and promotions. But that happened under their watch, and now this mess. In my opinion, I mean, I. John DeFries is an old friend and one of the great, good guys. But when you look up the makeup of the board and the group and the HCA actual executive team, in my view now, it looks like they've lost their way and they've morphed to so far looking at how do we just make the community happy instead of looking for the balance. I mean, when you talk about the Malama campaign, what a great idea. Have you been to Eisenberg Park and the baseball park on the corner on King Street? It's got 150 homeless tents. Malama, we should be, you know, we have to take care of our own first. Look at Waikiki with all the homeless, crazy, screaming, yelling. You know, we're going to tell the visitors to be respectful of our land. We need to be more respectful of our our land. So I think HCA has a a difficult task. And because of legislative influence, not only to use manipulation, but just heavy-handedness with them. To me, it feels like they've lost their way.
4: That was Keith Vieira, former Starwood executive, now with KB and Associates Hospitality Consultants. He was talking about the recent award of the tourism marketing contract to the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, Olehua,
1: Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Moloka, O Lana,
4: O Hawaii. In our backyard quiz today, we're taking to the skies above the 50th state. Since Hawaiian Airlines started as Inter-Island Airways back in 1929, quite a few scheduled commercial carriers have served Honolulu and the neighbor islands. Pan-American, the trailblazing international pioneer, no longer exists. Northwest Orient has been absorbed by Delta, which still serves Hawaii, as do domestic carriers United, American, Alaska, and Southwest. No longer around are Transocean, Canadian Pacific, TWA, Continental, Pacific East Air, and others. Inner Island Competition has seen the birth and death of Aloha Airlines, GO, Mid-Pacific Air, Skybus Discovery, and Mahalo. All these carriers have one thing in common, of course, airplanes. So our question today is, has there ever been a scheduled service in Hawaii called Airplane Airlines? Please have your boarding passes ready, and we'll tell you in the second half of today's show. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
0: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neiread Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeireadHawaii.com.
4: Maui County is considering the creation of a local water authority in East Maui to oversee management of this public trust resource. This comes as the state weighs whether to grant a long-term water lease to a private for-profit entity. H. Spears Kuhuiuri she joins us with more. Good morning.
6: Good morning, Catherine. Uh, the Maui, as you mentioned, the Maui County Council is considering this uh, resolution that would add. A question to the ballot this November, asking Maui voters whether they'd like to establish an East Maui Community Water Authority uh, responsible for for stewarding this public trust resource. So, uh, as we know, water in Hawaii is protected as, as a public trust resource under the state constitution and state water code, and and this means the state you know prioritizes public trust uses of, of fresh water over uh, private. Uh, interest diversions of water away from the stream, but uh, as plantation history has shown us, uh, water wasn't always managed as a public trust resource. And in East Maui, uh, for more than 150 years, the streams and rivers were diverted by by plantation owners uh, into into central Maui. But once these these plantations began to fold. At, at the end of the last century communities like like those in Ke'anai and, and Wailua, uh, Hana and East Maui with a strong tradition of, of taro farming and subsistence agriculture um, went to battle for for restoration of, of stream flow Malka to Makai and went to battle in the courts and and um, just in 2015 uh especially in east maui uh stream rest streams were restored uh thanks to to a group that's been advocating for decades and now you know the same entity that initially diverted that water from east maui is looking to secure a 30-year lease water lease with the state for water from East Maui, so the timing, right, of of this proposal um, to create a local authority isn't isn't much of a surprise um, for Kanai taro farmer Jerome Kikivi Jr. It's it's ideal that that local control over water through this water authority um, is something that he'd like he'd like to pursue and pursue right now.
0: I mean, plain and simple, we we born in Reese in this. In this village, you know, in this Aupua, we can trace our lineage back to when they first went build the, the ditch system. We get Ohanas inside this village that they get Manao and they know the whole system. We still get the farmers, we still get the hunters, we still get the gatherers. They walk the same trails as the kupunas, you know, that, that uh, depend on these resources for survival. We cannot have what went happen to us happen again. So that's why we need to we need to do this now so our kikis get a seat at the table when it's their turn.
6: That idea of, of having a seat at the table, you know, a say in how uh, water in in the region is managed and stewarded is something that, that was really attractive, is really attractive to to these taro farmers who are kind of um, enjoying the restoration of stream flow uh, to east to East Maui and so, uh, Maui County Councilman Shane Sinanti, who's uh, from East Maui and who introduced the resolution, uh, says the you know proposed authority would be housed within the county, uh, and led by an administrator, but also made up of about 11 or so community members from East Maui and having. An advisory board of uh, folks from the community, as well as experts in, in engineering and maintenance, watershed management, public finance, and so on, uh, would be the composition of this potential authority. Um, and you know what makes this sort of different from there's the board of water supply at the county level, and also the commission on water resource management that that makes these decisions at a state level is that you would kind of have a more of a say for those in the community directly in terms of who gets to lease out this water, if at all.
4: It's an interesting so, like, uh, proposal. Uh, and the, yeah. the county council, they're taking it up uh, right now, today.
6: Yes. Yeah, so the Maui County Council's a uh, Committee on Government Relations, Ethics, and Transparency, or a great committee, actually, Uh, heard the resolution earlier just about an hour ago and it was approved but it was close it was a five to three vote so it's not and this is just the committee it will need to go uh, to the full county council for approval and and if so it will uh end up on uh the ballot as a question for maui voters this fall
4: well they don't have much time Um, i I I mean they've got a um really you know hurry up and decide if that's what they're going to do. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of interesting that you would have this. I can see how it might be kind of confusing, though, because you do have different entities. Like you said, the Water Resource Commission um, and then right. the, the county.
6: Sort of layers of authority. And I think that's something that we once um, we hear more about the details of how this would be implemented, that will become uh, clear uh, but uh, you know after I'd say more than a century of plantation diversions and decades of court battles, I, I think the community kind of just wants to reclaim some of that some of that authority over the management of their resources. The question is and and this was the question uh, when the Maui County Council was also considering um, buying up or acquiring the Wailuku water system so the system over there in um, uh, the Wailuku side of Of town um, it it was you know it was affordable they would partner with the state but they were still a bit um, iffy about whether or not they'd have that expertise to not necessarily duplicate but have those you know have those experts on hand to do what they could to to run this system so this would be sort of a a, a step in that direction uh, not exactly running the system, but um, having more of a say over, over who gets the lease and use that water.
4: Yeah, interesting issue. So we'll see where it goes with the council. But thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HPR reporter Kuvehi Hirishi. To read more uh, on this, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Here's a new tool to navigate land use that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Cassie Ordoño on the line today. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Yes. And so uh, uh, land use issues are so interesting to me. And so tell us about this, uh, uh, this new tool, the Hawaii Zoning Atlas, uh, Atlas is what it's called.
7: Yeah, so this Hawaii Zoning Atlas just launched on June 1st. It's more of a pre-launch, so it won't be fully ready until maybe anticipated for September. So a group of um, local experts, um, Trey Gordner and um, David Kelly's Philip um, Face and even uh, Code for Hawaii, they're working on getting all this data and compiling it to where it's explaining zoning jargons in the most simplest term for the public. And um, it will also tell the public, you know, what can and can't be built, for example, example, what affordable housing can be built on what parcel or what it can't be built on what parcel.
4: So, um, gosh, I mean, uh, how did this idea come about? So Trey
7: actually got the inspiration when he was doing um, his master's um, in Virginia Tech um, on urban and regional planning. And he was inspired by Connecticut, who was the first to actually launch this initiative because um, Sarah Bronin, um, who is the founder of the National Zoning Atlas, she basically said that the general public does not understand zoning jargon like for example like for Hawaii like P2 lands what does that mean a type of preservation land where you can get exemptions to build affordable housing simple terms like that is kind of what inspired Trey um, and the um, local group to actually have this map available for the public to help guide them and understand these complicated um,
4: zoning laws and uh, so uh, David Callies I know he was a a, a former uh, dean over at the um, University of Hawaii School of Law Mm -hmm. So he's got that background.
7: He's there, too, um, working on the project. And so is um, uh, uh, Professor Philip Garboden, who specializes in um, urban and regional planning. But those two, um, they're helping Trey um, in advising
4: him on these um, zoning laws. So, yeah, I mean, basically other states have have said, hey, this is valuable and, um, and, and are doing something similar.
7: Yeah, so Connecticut is one, New York, Ohio, California. Um, I think New Hampshire. Um, and Hawaii is just the latest. So, um, we're going to have to wait and see um when the final product comes out cuz it's supposed to outline all of the um the county districts and um all of the zoning districts and just explaining it in the most simple terms for the public to understand.
4: Yeah, I mean, I know when I uh, jump on the uh the uh on the on the county's, you know, website uh, a lot of times it's technical, and, and I don't I just don't understand some of the stuff that's basic. Like, what am I looking at, you know, two-bedroom, five-bathroom uh, uh, project or, or something more?
7: No, exactly. Um, and, you know, DPP does have, like, some resources, but sometimes it's intimidating for the public to go and search for it. Or sometimes, like, for me, for example, I have to call Curtis Lem to kind of help, you know, guide me through this and actually really sit down, and that takes time. Or even if you're... Um, Uh, Using the physical land use ordinance, um, I was talking with uh, my colleague Stuart Yurton to see if you're allowed to have, like, maybe a barbershop in your house. And it took us 15 minutes to actually find out if we can or can't. Um, So it can be very intimidating and very frustrating to actually understand and search for that information.
4: Yeah, and uh, your story talks about a a recent example um, of a development uh, there in Manoa Valley. Uh, the Chinese Cemetery wanted to put up a proposal i mean uh, put in a proposal for for some senior housing i think yeah,
7: and there there was, um, you know, confusion. And some of the residents did raise valid concerns. But also um, there is confusion with um, the type of preservation land. When you think of preservation land, you think nothing should be built there, period. But in DPP terms like P2, you can build some type of affordable housing through a housing exemption. But um, then you have to go through the lengthy process, and sometimes it can be a lottery if you get it approved or not.
4: And so uh, you said that this is a, a soft launch. Um, you know, how soon... Do the, uh, the founders hope that it's going to be uh, up and running?
7: They're hoping as soon as possible, but September, uh,
4: no later than September, for sure. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll uh, see how this plays out. But interesting. I, I plan to jump on there and check it out. But thanks so much, Cassie. <laughs> thanks for having me. That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's Reality Check. You can read her story. Uh, visit civilbeat.org. <laughs>
0: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'ina, caring for the land, Outrigger.com.
1: On Monday, the committee investigating the January 6th attack began laying out their case against former President Trump. They believe he pushed to overturn the 2020 election, even though he knew he'd lost.
0: I told them that it was was, uh, crazy stuff, and they were wasting their time on that.
1: Join us for live special coverage and analysis of the next public hearing tomorrow from NPR News.
5: Beginning at 7 a.m. here on HPR 1.
0: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com.
4: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to an endangered native bird with a singular call and an unusual crest.
3: Akoe koe are the largest honeycreepers remaining in Maui Nui and are just a spectacular bird. Measuring about seven inches from bill to tail, they're mostly shiny black, but their feathers are tipped in orange, silver, and white to give them a beautiful speckled appearance. They also have bright orange necks and a very unusual fluffy white crest on their forehead, which is where their English name, Crested Honeycreeper, comes from. Why they have this crest, no one really knows. One possibility is it helps attract the opposite sex, but another more likely possibility is as it makes them better at dispersing pollen between the many flowers they visit throughout the day, this is important because akoekoe are nectarivores, meaning that nectar from a variety of native flowers is their main food source. Though they spend most of their time sipping nectar from ohia lehua trees, other nectarivores that compete for food with akoekeoe include the orange-red eevee and the brick-red apapane. Being the biggest of the three. Akoe are able to chase away the others from their favored foraging areas. Like many other Hawaiian birds, the name Akoe Koe may come from some of the many sounds that they make. If you use your imagination, sound a little bit like their name. Akoe Koe once ranged throughout Maui and Molokai but today are only found in a relatively small patch of wet forest high up on the side of Haleakalā volcano. With less than 2,000 birds left, they're considered to be critically endangered and are a major focus of conservation efforts from a variety of groups, including the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project. Like most of our remaining honeycreepers, Okoekoe are very susceptible to mosquito-transmitted avian malaria and one recent study that used radio transmitters to track the movements of adults and juveniles found that while adults rarely leave the safety of their mosquito-free territories at high elevations, the juveniles travel widely across the landscape, including lower elevation forests that may have plenty of nectar resources, but also have disease carrying mosquitoes. This plus the fact that Akoekoe only have one or two babies per year, is a major reason why their populations continue to decline, despite there being plenty of forests left on Maui for them to live. Also, as temperatures continue to rise with global warming, these mosquitoes may invade the mosquito-free habitat at high elevations in Ocoicoe's last stronghold. Landscape scale mosquito control may be our best hope at saving this iconic bird. And a new technique that uses naturally occurring bacteria, known as Wolbachia, to sterilize breeding mosquitoes may actually be implemented in the next few years. Hopefully, this will reduce or eliminate mosquito populations in a koekoe habitat before it's too late. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology.
0: Support for Manu Minute comes from Waiakea Hawaiian Volcanic Water, committed to supporting nonprofits that help communities with safe water solutions, such as Pump Aid in Malawi, Africa. Waiakea.com on the
5: next Fresh Air, writer Candice Millard tells the dramatic story of two British explorers who spent years trekking through East Africa, enduring injury and illness in a search for the source of the Nile River. The collaboration would lead to a bitter feud over the meaning of their discoveries. Millard's new book is River of the Gods. Join us.
0: Beginning this afternoon at three, following On Point.
4: For our backyard quiz today, we asked you about scheduled airline service to our islands. It's a fiercely competitive industry, both domestically and and internationally, and many of the passenger carriers which once served Hawaii no longer exist. We said adios to Pan Am, TWA, Continental, Pacific East Air, and we've said aloha to Aloha Go, Skybus, Mid-Pacific, Discovery, and Mahalo. Hawaiian Airlines, though, has been in continuous operation since 1929, flying inter-island and to the mainland as well as internationally. And Southwest, Southwest Airlines joined the market back in 2019. Today, we asked you if there's ever been scheduled flight service in Hawaii from Airplane Airlines. Well, the answer is yes. Okay, it was kind of a quick question, a trick question. The carrier is Mokulele Airlines. It's been in business since 1998. And in Hawaiian, Mokulele means airplane. And that's our backyard quiz today. We had no winners, but please take all your personal carry on items with you when you leave. And thank you for flying with the conversation. If you have an idea for a quiz that you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. <music>
0: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering resources to Hawai'i's educators, including the workshop Teaching for Artistic Behaviors. Open to the community, honolulumuseum.org slash educators. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers
3: with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Guy Finley, author of The Seeker, The Search, The Sacred.
5: And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how we awaken our latent interior greatness.
4: Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Did you know that Hawaii leads the nation when it comes to renewable electric power? On Hawaii Island, Maui and Oahu, close to a third of our electricity comes from renewable resources. And on a clear day, Kauai can meet 100% of its power needs through clean energy. But Scott Glenn, chief energy officer for the state of Hawaii, says that electricity is only one piece of the puzzle. Everything we eat, drink, drive or otherwise use requires some form of power. And the vast majority of it still runs on the roughly 30 million barrels of oil that we import each year. And as Glenn told HPR Savannah, Harriman Pote, it gets here the same way as almost everything else on a big old boat.
8: There's a pretty regular rhythm of every 2 weeks. 10 days to 2 weeks we have a oil tanker pulling up off the shore of Oahu and unloading oil. Mhm.
1: So we're going through all of that oil, 200,000 to 900,000 barrels of oil on a biweekly or weekly basis. Is that
8: true? Yes, for the most part. Okay. I would I would say in general we do have reserves around the island, we make sure to keep those reserves in place, and when we have to tap into those reserves, we replenish the reserves. But we are also using it as we get it, right? And we only have so much storage in the islands, so when we look at bringing something, it's pretty much getting processed, refined, distributed, and used. Mm -hmm. When you look at Hawaii's total energy mix, and that's everything, talking about electricity, transportation, all the stuff we use energy for, about 85% of our total energy use comes from petroleum-derived products. Often we talk about our 100% renewable energy goal. That's really about electricity, which is one piece of our total energy picture. That's not counting cars and trucks and planes and ships that run on gasoline or diesel or jet fuel or things like that. Hawaii having the most aggressive renewable portfolio standard goals and being the most petroleum-dependent state in the country are two things that really go hand in hand. They're complements, and we have to be so aggressive in order to really tackle the challenge in front of us of this petroleum dependence. So as islands, we are in a distinct, unique position where we really have to be able to fend for ourselves when we come to our energy needs. And I think a lot of us learned lessons from Puerto Rico. And when they were hit by the hurricane, they're not that far away from Florida. And look how difficult it was for them.
1: Let's think a little bit about that question of reserves because what it sounds like is we have biweekly shipments that are coming into one central point. If that process was interrupted, if we weren't able to get a shipment of oil, what would that mean for energy in the islands. How much of a buffer do we have at any one time?
8: Almost every aspect of our life depends on electricity or some type of fuel. The water we drink relies on pumps being operated by electricity. You know, we're pulling water out of the ground. There's a lot of gravity feed in there, but we're also using pumps to move things. Our food is refrigerated with electricity. We get to and from places using gasoline, to drive our cars. The ports are operated with tractors and heavy equipment that generally run on diesel. The tugboats that move around the harbor to position the ships for offloading are running on diesel or like a bunker fuel. The power plants burn what we call low sulfur fuel oil. Definitely on Oahu, on the other islands we burn ultra low sulfur diesel. The hospitals have electricity that they need, right? And most of them have diesel backup generators in case their electricity gets interrupted. The water irrigation systems I had mentioned have these different pumps. They have backups as well. For us to continue our day-to-day life, you know, we need energy. And so because of that, energy is considered a critical lifeline from the point of view of disaster planning. It's, It's so foundational to everything else we do that we have to make sure there's enough energy for everything else to work so we need to make sure that there's enough energy in the islands for any event that might happen we have about 30 days of crude oil stored on Oahu so that's just in storage so if we miss a shipment of crude oil we tap into that that crude oil is kind of can be made into almost anything we need right so that's that's kind of our backup backup But we also have stores of gasoline and diesel and low sulfur fuel oil. And we have those not just on Oahu, but every island. And so it depends on the island and how much is is stored, but just to focus on Oahu for a minute, where most of the energy infrastructure is, especially the fossil fuel infrastructure, we have about 30 days of gasoline. And now I'm talking about kind of a normal day's use. And of course, in a disaster scenario, we would, we would restrict that, right? We would lower the amount that gets used on a daily basis and extend it even more. I think Hawaiian Electric has about a month and a half of fuel oil stored. So if they're not able to get more fuel oil or the refinery's not able to make more fuel oil for some reason, HIKO has about a month and a half on hand. We take this quite seriously as a state to make sure we have good amount of energy stored and ready to go. I think the other islands tend to have anywhere between 10 to 30 days' worth of these different types of fuels. They tend to be smaller populations and lower, smaller amounts of energy use, right? But Hawaii has a hub-and-spoke system. That's what we call it. All of the petroleum, the jet fuel, and the gasoline that we bring to the state come to Oahu, and then they're brought on shore here, processed, stored, and then anything that goes to the other islands— gets put on ships and taken from Oahu to that island. And then it's offloaded on that island, and it's stored on that island. So when we talk about resilience, we're talking about every island's energy system having some amount of on-island storage, and then depending on Oahu. And then Oahu, in turn, depends on the continental US and Asia for energy to get here. Oil's what we call a fungible product we can source oil from anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of willingness to pay. How much are we willing to pay? At what price? For how much? And so if one supplier, for whatever reason, decides not to sell us or they go offline, they're not able to provide it, then the company that, that imports the oil to Hawaii will find another supplier.
1: Can you talk a little bit about who we have sourced oil from in the past?
8: Yes. So we Hawaii pulls in oil from around the world, and not all oil is the same. So that's one thing I think it's important to understand is oils from different parts of the world have different chemical compositions that make them more or less suited for different uses. So as I mentioned, the barrel of oil in Hawaii is mainly for jet fuel and for gasoline and and burning in the power plants. So that means there are certain oils around the world that are better for those uses than other uses. Where that tends to be is Siberia and North Africa. Those are the two places that have the crude oils in the ground that really meet Hawaii's economic needs. Now, if we weren't able to get it from there, and for example, when President Biden announced the ban on Russian oil, our company, they shifted their sourcing from Russia to South America. So we'll be bringing more oil from Argentina, where we've already been getting some oil from. And then we also bring in a small amount of oil from Alaska. And so we'll probably have some more oil from Alaska coming to Hawaii, too, while this Russian ban is in place.
1: And how much does oil cost? How much are we paying to each of these individual countries?
8: It, It really ranges. And it, of course, depends on the cost of the barrel of oil. In general, I'd say a floor is we probably spend about $3 billion a year or more importing oil to Hawaii. When oil goes up even more, we're, we're exporting even more dollars from our economy. One thing that, that I tend to compare that to is our tourism economy. And if you think about tourism in Hawaii as part of economic activity, tourism is about a $17 billion a year effort. So that's every, every hotel room, rental car, tourist in a restaurant, all that economic activity adds up to about $17 billion a year, not counting the COVID years, right, just kind of talking normally. So if you compare that to our energy bill for the state, for our economy, we're sending two or three months of tourism. All the tourism in the state is turning around and going to Russia and Libya and some of these other countries to bring oil to Hawaii.
1: And can we go back and talk a little bit about how crude oil gets here. So it arrives on a boat?
8: I think it's more interesting to start with it's being put on a boat mm-hmm. rather than it arrives on a boat. Because if you think about, I mean, picture Siberia. What are folks' image of Siberia? It's a cold, rocky, windy place, um, sparsely populated. When I see pictures of it, I think it's got beautiful vistas. and um, And yet we're We're one of the customers to buy the oil that's damaging the local environment there. I mean, oil extraction has environmental impacts, local environmental impacts. And then it also has global environmental impacts when you burn it. Or if you think about Libya, which is one of our major sources, I don't think Americans are that engaged with Libya. But ever since the United States changed the leadership of Libya, it's pretty much run by these various tribes and warlords that are fighting for control of the oil fields and so we're effectively funding we in hawaii by buying that oil are supporting this fractured government in libya that's not at peace with itself or its people i mean so so to me that's something that i think about a lot for our energy security the country's energy security but also just world peace and the people that live in these places and are affected by energy decisions made in the middle of the Pacific Ocean.
1: Do you think in the current conversation about renewable energy, we are overlooking aspects of our relationship to oil? Are there particular things that are going to be challenging that we are not
8: talking about? It's hard to say like a 100% yes, we got it all dialed in, right? Right. But I think we are pretty aware of the different challenges that come from switching from oil. Because oil has some really attractive features for why we want to use it for energy. Unfortunately, oil has a major drawback. It causes climate change. And we here in the islands have to be especially sensitive to that because we're already on the front lines of climate change and experiencing the world's addiction to oil. I think for most people, energy is something that exists in the background and is invisible to how they live their lives. And so we try to help folks understand um, Hawaii's relationship with oil and energy in general. Um, coal, for example, mainly comes from Indonesia, and it's it's extracted from a rainforest that Indonesia is cutting down. So that's where about 16% of the energy that electricity we use on Oahu is coming from a burned-down rainforest in Indonesia.
1: Do you think it's important to keep trying to bring people into these realities because there is such a disassociation from the sources of our energy?
8: I do. That's a great question. I do think it's, it's helpful for folks to understand that the changes that we're going through in Hawaii, this transition to renewable energy from fossil fuel, it's hard to understand if you don't understand the status quo. Folks might, well, why do we have to go to all this trouble? Why can't we just do this? Keep keep doing what we're doing. And we can't keep doing what we're doing because it's causing climate change, which is, you know, threatening our way of life in the islands. It's getting more and more expensive. And it's also becoming something that's increasingly showing that Hawaii is wrapped up in this, this international energy issue, right? You know, our, it's kind of crazy to think that little old Hawaii in the middle of the Pacific is sending a billion dollars a year to Vladimir Putin. Oil is going to be every year, always. As long as we use oil, we're always going to have to have biweekly or whatever shipments coming here from somewhere in the world. But the more that we can switch to renewable energy, especially our own renewable energy, solar, wind, geothermal, other types of wind, uh, wave, you know, these types of energies that we make here, it's less we depend on other places. It's less imposition we're making on other places. Yes, we're Hawaii. We're a small amount of contributions, but we're part of it. And I think we also have an obligation to live the ask, we're making the rest of the world. We need the rest of the world to stop using fossil fuels so that we don't drown here in the islands. And should we continue using fossil fuels as well while we're asking the rest of the world to stop doing it?
4: That was Chief Energy Officer Scott Glenn. He spoke with HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote about the state's continued dependence on oil. we have to go now. Tomorrow we look forward to the Father's Day weekend with a story about a father-son relationship strengthened by a shark attack off Maui. Got a story that you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our Talk Back line 808-792-8217 Email works to talkback at hawaiibuckradio.org Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online on the conversation page of our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.